Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, Mysteries of the Kingdom, today as we look in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 30. And Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Greatest Invitation in History. Some time ago, Larry Ellison was reported by Forbes magazine as the fourth richest man in the world. Well, he made headlines in 2012 when he purchased the sixth largest island in the Hawaiian chain, the island of Lanai. And estimates vary as to how much he paid for it, probably around 300 million. But those were just the beginning of his costs. The island is one of the most underdeveloped islands in the Hawaiian chain, but all of that has begun to change. Now, Allison has built magnificent, world-class resorts on that island. And as one enters one of the resorts, one sees a multi-million dollar Polynesian art collection. And if you decide to stay in the penthouse, you're going to pay $21,000 a night. And on the outside, on the grounds, guests see everything from countless waterfalls, koi ponds, botanical gardens, and so forth. One of the most magnificent golf courses just outside. A horse stable is available for rides throughout the island, and for $1,600, you can take flying lessons and see the islands from the plane you're piloting, along with a seasoned pilot to watch over you. You know, if there ever was a place, this is the place for the lifestyle of the rich and the famous. But for the purposes of this message, let's play a little game of let's pretend. Have you ever dreamt of spending a vacation on one of the most exclusive resorts in the world? What if, after having built his resort, Larry Allison announced that the only people allowed onto his resort would be the most exclusive clients whom he invited personally? Well, I suspect many of us would say, well, I'm, I'm sure that leaves me out. But then in our little game of let's pretend, let's imagine that Larry Allison announced the kind of people he was inviting. Imagine, he said, I, I'm going to be scouring the world for a certain kind of a person. I will be inviting only those people who are weary and overworked and overburdened and have had major failures in their lives and those who have no idea as to how to get ahead. My island is for changing their lives. Two conditions. You have to be completely desperate and you have to be willing to accept my offer. Well, you might say, that's very interesting. I wonder what kind of people he has in mind. Well, that description will definitely mean he passes over some who thought they should be there and includes some who will be the most surprised. In many ways, that's the invitation of Jesus. Let's read the account of the greatest and strangest invitation in history. I'm reading Matthew 11:25 to 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, we should remember just just a bit of background to this. You know, Matthew, who writes this book, is presenting us with a portrait of the Jesus whom he came to know. And Matthew wants us to know that this is the great king. And in this portrait, Matthew is showing us an impressive array of miracles. 
And in showing us these, he's making a point. The great promised future kingdom of heaven has, in some fashion, already broken into the present hour. Jesus is bringing us the kingdom of heaven right now. But that news, which should have created great rejoicing, is in fact dividing people. You know, some see the miracles and believe, but some don't. What are we to make of that? Is Jesus failing in his mission? And Matthew says, no, he's not. And now he answers that by pointing out that Jesus denounced those cities that saw his greatest miracles but did not repent. Turning from the citizens of Capernaum, Jesus now turns to the Father. Look again at verses 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, let's be careful to notice what we're reading. Some care. First, notice verse 25, the phrase, these things. What things? Well, context is everything, so these things must refer to the significance of Jesus' miracles. Jesus says, God, I thank you that you've hidden the significance of these miracles from the wicked people of Capernaum, and yet you've revealed the significance of these miracles to little babes. Okay, we get that. Now, let's take it one step further. Jesus is delighted that God has hidden the significance of the miracles from the people of Capernaum. In fact, he praises God for it. He's thankful to God for this. He's delighted when he thinks of it. Well, how can that be? So before we go any further, let's consider the implications of this passage. And as we do, a word of caution is in order. No Christian should delight in the destruction of the wicked. In fact, God himself says the same. Look at Ezekiel 33, verse 11. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? There are other passages that speak the very same way. For instance, consider Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. However, we picture God in his righteousness and as judge. We must never see him rubbing his hands in glee at the rightful judgment of sinners for their sins. And anybody who says to someone, go to hell, as we so frequently hear in our day, we will do well to remember that we who say these words have sinned enough to go there ourselves. The final judgment is a terrifying subject, and it should fill us with sadness and grief and a deep sense of sorrow. Don't you delight yourself in the destruction of the wicked, for God does not. But there is another sense in which all God's actions, including his judgment of the wicked, are the cause for delight. You know, Psalm 115 verse 3 says of God, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Another way of saying that is to say, whatever God does is done out of his delight, out of his pleasure. But here's the big question. How does God say, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and at the same time, that all I do, including the death of the wicked, I do for my pleasure? Well, the answer to that is that God acts for his glory. He defends his glory and his justice, but while he does so, he does not do so with a motive of vindictiveness but rather with a motive of defending his justice and his glory. 
but while he judges the wicked, he weeps over their fate. I know it takes a little bit to think that through, but but we can say, on the one hand, God weeps over people who refuse to repent, but on the other hand, God rejoices that his just cause is always being maintained. And so when Jesus rejoices over the damnation of the people of Capernaum, he does so only so far as he delights that his justice will not be defeated by those rebels. No unbelief in Capernaum will stop God from receiving glory. Essentially, what Jesus says here can be summarized in the following way. First, that Christ had a word for those who would not repent. They will receive greater judgment. And then Christ speaks to his Father. Here's what he says. I'm delighted that you have hidden yourself from the proud, but I am also delighted that you reveal yourself to children. You know, that phrase, little children, that we find in verse 25, Well, it refers to those who have no resources, but they're completely dependent on God. Those, on the other hand, who feel that they don't need God, that they're doing all things quite well, thank you very much, those, he hides himself from them. Now look again at verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Listen, because the Son and the Father know each other perfectly, Jesus says, my heart, therefore, is completely in line with that of the Father. Even as he hides himself from the proud, so I, too, have hidden the truth of what I'm doing from those from whom the Father has hidden himself. I have acted exactly as my Father has acted. Now, that fits perfectly with with Jesus' words recorded in John 5, verse 19. You know, there he said, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. That is to say, when Jesus denounced the wicked citizens of Capernaum, he was acting in accordance with the will of his father. Jesus always acted in complete concert with what the father did. grateful you joined us today for Back to the Bible Canada. We believe faithful Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Neufeld available on this station. We do know, though, that there are times when it's not possible to listen on the radio. So for your convenience, we provide a number of free listening options. Listen online at backtothebible.ca. Sign up for the daily podcast. Subscribe for the free mobile app or check out the weekly Truth and Life Today video broadcast on the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. Just a few of the free Bible teaching opportunities available for Canadians and around the globe, but only available because of the passion and generosity of so many across this country. Thanks for all you do. Call us today with your support or for ministry information at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Now in this passage, Jesus is not done. He has denounced those who would not believe and he has expressed delight in the will of the Father. But there's one more thing that he must say. He must offer an invitation to all who are hearing him. 
an invitation I call the greatest and strangest invitation in history. Well, how so? Well, let's look again at verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, most of us have heard those words many times and find them beautiful and inviting and assuring and satisfying. And they are. But for a moment, consider what it meant for those who are listening. First, notice Jesus is making an invitation to the little children. Now, the people of Capernaum think they're not as bad as others, but the little children, well, they make no such assumption. And second, when Jesus speaks about taking his yoke, well, the language of the yoke was, at least during his day, that was an image that was often used by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they spoke of the yoke of the law. And if you don't know what a yoke is, well, it's a wooden cross piece that's placed on the necks of, of two animals so that they can pull a plow together. And sometimes in the Old Testament, a yoke was an image of bondage or the image of, of labor and hard work. And that was the Pharisaical view of the law. They saw the law as a duty, and that duty was placed on all, a work that they needed to accomplish in order to please God. And so that's what the yoke of the law was. And Paul refers to that in Galatians 5 verse 1 when he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. See, there Paul says that the yoke of the law is a yoke of slavery. Now, no one could keep the law as a means of pleasing God. So if you think you can, do you think that you can make yourself good enough for God? Well, you're fooling yourself. In truth, you have already failed. You deserve condemnation along with the people of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. Your fate will be like theirs. Now, there were many in Israel who were weary of the yoke of the Pharisees. Their endless rules added to the law and the tradition of the elders and, and this striving to keep external rules. It was just a burden on the populace. And to those who really wanted to be reconciled with God, the ones who had been told that, that law-keeping would make them acceptable before God, and yet they also knew that they hadn't been pleasing to God. Well, Christ's words were for them. He says to them, come to me. Notice he doesn't say, come to my rules or come to the law or come back and try one more time. He says none of that. He simply assumes that no matter how hard they try, they will never be right with God. And so realizing the poverty of their spiritual condition, Jesus invites the sick and the sinful and the ugly and the disappointing to himself. His kingdom will be made up of those who have nothing to offer and absolutely nothing to give. It's kind of like the illustration I gave at the beginning of my message. The only ones invited on Christ's island are those who are overworked and overburdened and have failed to keep the demands of the law. And to those who have failed, Christ makes an invitation. Matthew, as he wrote those words, I think he must have been weeping. So why do I think that? Well, I think that because he was such a man. And so were the friends that met with him that night in his house. You know, in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew records how on one day, while he, the man who had betrayed God and had betrayed his nation Israel, was sitting at a Roman tax booth collecting taxes for the nation that was oppressing Israel, and that Jesus had walked straight over to him and simply said, follow me. And, and that was it. 
And Matthew did just that. And that night in Matthew's own house, every detestable sinner from the entire region, from Capernaum to Chorazin to Bethsaida, gathered in his house with Jesus, the man who brought the kingdom of heaven to earth. But Matthew wasn't the only one. So was Mary Magdalene, the woman who had seven demons. So also were the poor and the needy that formed the bulk of of Jesus' followers. And of them, Jesus expected only one thing, that they would come to him. And why would they come? Well, they would come because he had promised to give them rest. No more working hard to obtain that for which they couldn't work. Instead, Jesus freely offered peace with God and security with God and never having to fear condemnation again, love from God, acceptance at his table. I promise it, he said, just just come to me. Have you ever noticed how the gospel, if it is the gospel at all, is a gospel of grace? Grace means that something is given that we haven't earned or deserved. And so Jesus invites only those who who recognize that the greatest gift of all, the gift of the Father, is simply a gift that we can't earn or deserve. That's the conundrum of works. All those who work to earn the Father's acceptance will never find it. And all those who know that they have no capacity to earn it, well, they're invited to come to Christ. Now, just when we think we got that, comes verse 29, take my yoke upon you. Just when we're weary and overburdened, does Jesus then demand that we accept a new yoke, even though it's a lighter one, yet a, yet a yoke nonetheless? No, no. He simply says, here, this is an act of grace. When you come, take my yoke. And with that, he lovingly puts a yoke around our neck. Now, if that sounds strange, I don't think it sounded strange to Jesus' hearers. They all knew that yokes were not just what you put around two animals to pull a plow. They were also human yokes as well. Imagine, if you will, that you're carrying two pails of water, one in either hand. If you accept a yoke, suddenly those pails, or as before they were unmanageable, become bearable. They were easy to carry. That would all depend on how the yoke was designed. If it was badly constructed, it would chafe your shoulders, and if it was made of heavy materials, it would only add to the weight. But if it was extremely well-made, all the burdens you were carrying would suddenly become manageable. So Jesus also makes demands on our lives. He demands we follow him. He demands we learn from him, imitate him, become obedient to him. We're to follow him, knowing that what he calls us may cost us our very lives. And quite frankly, Jesus demands everything of you. He demands the things you love and the things you hate. He's going to take over your lifestyle and your life. He will direct your future. He's going to reshape your dreams. That's his yoke. Oh, we say, but that sounds so hard. That sounds like a burden. I don't know if I can do that. And then he adds the words, I know I'm the king, but I am gentle and lowly of heart, meaning I'm going to treat you ever so carefully, ever so gently. I'm going to lead you to my rest. In effect, he says, if you come to me, your burdens will suddenly become bearable. Let me give you a personal application. You know, some years ago, while I was especially burdened with my work, some friends came to me and they urged me to take some time away. And at first I resisted. I had all sorts of stuff to do. I said, I'm busy with the Lord's work. It's a great burden. And Kathy came to me and said, John, you you used to take the beginning of every year and and you used to take a week of prayer. You haven't done that for a while. I think it's harming you to, to neglect this. So I got away and I sat in silence for about four days. No TV, no internet, no radio, no schedules, no plans. I just sat in silence 
and I came to two conclusions. One, my soul had been so noisy with business I could hardly hear God. I was getting irritated over little things and impatient and too busy, and I was asking, you know, where's God in all of this? And second, I was thinking my plans and activity was what was needed. But what was really needed was that I still my soul and become aware of God and of his great love for me and of the grace of Christ. And then God showed me that I had neglected a Sabbath, making sure that one day of every week I did nothing but rest and allow myself to be refreshed in his presence. And then I remembered how often Jesus got alone to pray. And so for four days I, I reveled in the presence of God. And when I got back, well, my mom died the next day. And then the busyness came back. But I had a new sense that Jesus and not the things around me were directing my life. See, here's what I think. Too many of us are busy directing our own lives, and the burden is getting ever heavier. Here's Jesus' invitation. If you come to me and accept my yoke, I promise you the very thing that you need more than anything else. You need rest for your troubled soul. And I would say this, if you don't know Christ at this point in your life, I would invite you to come to him and accept his yoke, and you will find that he will transform your life. Simply come to him and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I give my life over to you, and you will find rest for your soul. John, I'm thinking about those words, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And yet, so many of us as God's people, I think we carry around these heavy, heavy, heavy burdens. It just doesn't seem to match up. I know that's the case. And, uh, you know, and many of us struggle with, you know, with Christ's demands in our lives. I mean, he does make demands. And sometimes uh, things that we want from him more than anything else in the world, he seems not to give us. Sometimes he says no to our request, although many times he does say yes. I mean, all of these things make us sometimes think that his burden is not light at all. It seems so heavy. But let me turn it the other way around, Ben. I mean, I think one of the things that happens to people is if they refuse Christ, I mean, you consider the burdens that they have. I mean, the burden of sin that is undealt with, um, of an aimless, purposeless life that never seems to reach anything, and then the impending uh, doom of our own death ever before us, filling us with fear and dread because the future looks so unsettling. I mean, that's a burden that we should never bear. Christ lifts all of that. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue the series, Mysteries of the Kingdom, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Visiting the Promised Land never loses its appeal. That's why I feel it's so important to offer Back to the Bible Canada Israel Experience April 27th to May 6, 2019. If you're able, taking the time to discover Jerusalem, the Garden Tomb, Sea of Galilee, King David's city, the list goes on and on, well, that will transform your understanding of the Bible and offer a spiritual impact like perhaps nothing else can on this earth. So consider joining me in Israel, and I'll do my best to bring every location to life and allow the Spirit of God to minister to your heart and mind. It all offers great fellowship and refreshment that sets the stage for new lifelong friendships. So consider joining us, and for more information, please call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.